Hi there, this is Austin Hetzler, the pastor of Christ the Rock Church of Elyria, Ohio. We at Christ the Rock are humbled and grateful to be a part of your sanctification today as you listen to this sermon. But at the same time, we want to encourage you to be a member of a good local church and not to allow online sermons to replace the local church and to benefit from the life of that church and to give your spiritual gifts back to that church. Having said that, our website is www.christrockchurch.com. If you go there, you can find sermons, blogs, and other resources as well as our location and service times. You can also listen to the sermons on Bible Thumping Wingnut, Podbean, iTunes, Google Play Music, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and Stitcher. I, along with the membership of Christ the Rock Church, pray that this sermon will be a blessing to you. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to continue in our study in the book of Proverbs. Lord Jesus, on account of what's going to be said today, I pray especially for the souls of our children. They are dear to us. We know that they are dear to you. We also understand that as you are under no obligation to save our souls, you are under no obligation to save theirs. But we intercede on their behalf as their parents, and we pray, Father, in earnest, that you will save them from the wrath to come. That even at this young and tender age, they would understand that to rely upon themselves in all matters of salvation will only end in damnation. Help me to speak with great clarity. Help them to listen and listen well as though their souls depend upon it because they do. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As you might have gathered from that prayer today, we are transitioning into proverbial parenting. And this is actually a departure from the plan, by the way, because here is where I had originally intended to give you a sermon on marriage, if not multiple sermons on marriage. But then as I was thinking about that, it occurred to me that I've already given you multiple sermons on marriage under different headings. But these have come in the form of so many subpoints and snippets. And so to revisit this here, I think, would be unhelpfully redundant. I'm not opposed to being redundant in general. I am nothing if not redundant. What are you preaching this week? The gospel? And next week, also the gospel. And the following week, also the gospel. But to do this, I think, would just be to repeat things we have already covered. And so I won't. So simply stated, what needed to be said about marriage, I believe already has been. So then we will conclude this series with parenting. Which is not to say that we have not also spoken to this in a significant way. But this is a reflection of the fact that I believe strongly that there remain truths unspoken that we cannot afford to leave so. But as we begin, we will once again frame this in the light of God-created sex distinctions. And this time we're going to consider men as patriarchs and women as matriarchs, i.e. mom and dad. Today I'm going to give you more of a high-level introduction to this subject, and then next week I will start to fill in for you the body of this study. But in this introductory sermon, there are just two broad headings. And that is, first, a consideration of the power of parental influence and the proper exercise of that power, 
And then second, the responsibility of children to be obedient. In this point, I will be speaking directly to the child aged in this gathering. I am always speaking to you if you are in this age bracket and in this situation, but I will be speaking to you specifically in this time. And I plead with you to listen and listen well. Now then, straightway to the first heading we go. And what I am compelled to convey to you here is the awesome power that you wield as a parent to mold and shape the lives of your children consistent with your sex, male or female, for ill or for good. And this is something that I consider a burden upon me. This is something I've been thinking about for multiple weeks. I understand, per the Word of God, that this is absolutely critical to you parenting your children in a Christ-honoring way. Let me start here by saying that there's a dearth of understanding in Christendom writ large when it comes to how men can and must love children as men and how women can and must love children as women. And I think part of this is due to the fact that we're so ravaged by divorce as a society that much of our teaching is devoted to how to clean up messes after the family has already been destroyed rather than focused on an affirmation of God's good, intact design and testifying to the absolutely essential nature of it. seems to me that in the 80s and the 90s, there was a lot of, a lot of talk in evangelical churches about needing to minister more to singles, to divorcees who have exited their marriages for one reason or another and now have children and they're hurting and they need to be ministered to. And that was true. It's still true that they need to be ministered to. But then it seems that we have gone in the opposite direction. The pendulum has swung too far the other way. And now we're in a circumstance where we often won't sufficiently make the case that single parenting is really bad. It really hurts those parents. It really hurts their children. It really hurts society. And our silence seems due to us not wanting to make struggling singles with kids feel bad. And I don't want to make them feel bad either. But I can't change what's true in order to attempt to achieve that objective. This approach then seems to be cousin to the, you know, we shouldn't talk about abortion because we have members who previously had one and they feel bad enough. Well, point not stipulated, actually, when it comes to that. Many of them don't feel bad enough. Many of them are unconverted because they have never actually been broken before the Lord for murdering their children. But they're also going to feel worse if you remand them to the prison of unforgiveness, which is what you are doing if you leave them in their sin by refusing to raise it. I don't want to raise sin, but I cannot raise the Savior in their minds if I don't. So I must. Similarly, our faux compassion in this area just compounds sin and its consequences as well. And in our silence, we end up consenting to the female-dominated world's notion that the single mom is, in fact, all-powerful and that she can, in all ways, replace dad, when, in fact, she cannot, and she most certainly has not. But to start to instruct you concerning these things, let me see if we can agree upon several simple propositions, and these derive from previous sermons, so I'm hopeful that we can. First proposition, men and women were created originally with spiritual and emotional gaps. Credit Rocky Balboa again in Rocky 1. 
I got gaps, you got gaps, but when we're together, we don't have any gaps. And those gaps are filled by a member of the opposite sex. Men and women were created originally with spiritual and emotional gaps, and they are filled in by a member of the opposite sex. Can we agree upon that? All right. Second proposition, the primary medium that God has given us to have these deficiencies inerrant to our respective sexes resolved is marriage. This is the covenant relationship wherein these gaps are filled in. Can we agree upon that? All right. And third and final proposition is that this complementary completion supplied by the opposite sex is very much in the category of need. It is not then, say, a felt need. It is not a want. It must actually be met. Can we agree upon that? Now, of course, the Lord does give the gift of celibacy. That's a small sliver of society. Accounting for that, the vast majority of people have an actual emotional and spiritual need that requires complementary completion from a member of the opposite sex. We have agreed. So then here's a question that naturally derives from all of this. And by the way, today will be a day of questions. So this is one of about 80. Um, And I'll warn you about that ahead of time. But here is the question at issue now. Given that complementary completion from a member of the opposite sex is in fact a need that must be met, but people do not marry until they reach adulthood, how does this need, as a need, get met prior to marriage? Again, it's not a want. It's got to be satisfied. And to clarify, what I'm asking you is, in lieu of wife for husband and husband for wife, who completes what is lacking in us human to human? Yes, I am aware that ultimate completion comes from the divine to human. I'm asking you, in this earthly experience, who supplies that completion that will ultimately be fulfilled in a husband or wife at a later point? Well, I'm not going to answer it yet. And I did hear one of you spoil it, but I hope that the rest of you didn't hear it. Instead, I will just ask you yet more questions. Again, this will be a day of questions. And here's another one, and this will start to drive us toward the answer. In, in your experience, as you observe the natural world, does it seem to you that all things being equal, and you have a healthy family dynamic, that sons tend to be closer to their fathers or their mothers, typically? Mothers? How about daughters? Do daughters tend to track more towards their mothers or their fathers? Fathers. And why is this? It is because, well, a father can and must show his son how to employ what the Lord has given him to God's glory because he is possessor of the same nature and attributes. He cannot give his son what is naturally deficient in his nature Because by nature, the father has the same deficiencies. Ergo, the son intuitively seeks what is lacking in himself, and he finds it in who? His mother. And likewise, well, daughters require their mothers to teach them how to use their like natures and giftings per God's word. They cannot fill in for them what they themselves also lack. Ergo, the daughter intuitively seeks what is lacking in herself. And who does she find it in? Her father. And so that you don't go on thinking that this is just my opinion, I direct you to the textual basis for this, which, of course, is in Genesis 1 and 2, which we have referenced often, and I submit to you that this is merely a logical deduction based upon what is taught there. This is the answer to the original question. 
prior to marriage fulfilling what is lacking per our sexes in the ultimate sense, the parent of the opposite sex applies this in a limited sense. And this is, of course, why the kind of father that a girl has often determines the kind of husband that she will end up marrying. It is the father who has supplemented her weaknesses, and if he has done well in this, she will typically marry well, and if he has done poorly in this, she will typically not. And with mothers and sons, it is the same. You show me a husband with a domineering wife, and I will show you a son with a domineering mother and a weak, emasculated father to boot. So then, parents, we are placeholders. And if you say that in a number of different contexts, that would be considered derogatory. But in this context, it's no denigration at all of our responsibilities. It is, in fact, a sobering, daunting, and somewhat terrifying consideration because of the great place that you are holding for them and the great need that you are fulfilling and the impact that will result from the way that you fulfill it upon your children. This will be felt for generations of children. Your grandchildren, their children, their children. Now there's much that I could say to mothers and fathers based upon these things. But I'm going to lean in on fathers especially, men, because we are the leaders. And so fathers, I want you to think once more on that adulterous woman that we spoke of previously. That Solomon articulates so graphically. She is a huntress. She is finding prey. She's moving through men, and she's moving through men quickly. She's devouring them. She's chewing them up. And she continues to do this because whatever need it is that she's attempting to satisfy is not actually satisfied. Therefore, there's another and another and another and another. What are the odds, would you say, that she had a good godly father who loved her like a man? I would say they are not good. And if you need support for this, I'd encourage you to very carefully research online statistics concerning women who enter into the porn industry and how many of them would say that they had a good father who was emotionally present. And forget spiritually for a moment, just emotionally present. Now consider also the man of violence of Proverbs 3.31, who Solomon warns his son not to envy. He's going around, he's tearing everything up, he's acting like a fool. What are the odds that he has a good, godly father who loved him like a man when he was growing up? Not good. And if you need proof of this, you can look up on your own time stats on violent criminals. Almost down to the man. They didn't have a good man to learn from who loved them. And I say all of this to make you aware of the stakes when it comes to parenting. And to encourage you to be what the Lord created you to be with the following effect, which is quite different than the outcomes that I have just raised. That is Proverbs 23:25. Let your father and your mother be glad and let her rejoice who gave birth to you. Wouldn't we all as parents want that? Don't we all? Of course we do. But understand here that that result derives directly from dad loving like dad, consistent with his nature, and mom, loving like mom, consistent with hers. But again, let's focus on the love of fathers. 
Dad, whose love are you to model when you love your children? Who are you modeling that after? Father? Father, whose love are you modeling? Not a rhetorical question. Please, someone answer. Father God. Yes? Absolutely. And how does Father God represent Himself through, say, the various different psalmists consistently? How about a rock? How about a strong tower? What is the point of that metaphor? When do you run to a strong tower? When things have gone a little wrong? When you're a little afraid? No, 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 no. When everything has fallen apart and you are shaken and you are terrified, you run to that strong tower because you recognize that the walls have the capacity to, de- to defend and to protect you. This is why when children have broken hearts, they'll seek comfort from their mothers commonly. But when they're really shaken, when they are actually shaking out of terror, it is their father's embrace that they seek because we model this aspect of the nature of God to them. But what of the conceptualization, say, of God as a mother hen, as in Psalm 36 or 57 or 63 or 91, for a few examples? Are we to model also this kind of compassionate nurture, or are we to simply leave this to our wives? Now, to be sure, I don't think there's a man in here, by the way, that would disagree with this, Our wives are better at modeling this aspect of God's character than we are. A lot better, in fact. But that's not the question. The question is whether or not women are to be the sole practitioners of this kind of nurture with their children. Or ought this manifest in we men, too? Now, it is times like this that I lament the fact that there is not a perfect man, just one, whose example we might glean from and whose testimony might give us the answer to these sorts of questions. Oh, wait, of course there is. And his name is Jesus, Matthew 23, 37 through 39. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you were unwilling. Now, if Jesus would have been as a hen who gathers her chicks under her wings to the unwilling, had they been willing. Is he not certainly so to those that he has made willing by the ministry of his spirit, of course? Of course he is. So there's the testimony of the perfect man, men, that you are to model your whole existence after. And in him is cast down the notion that masculine fatherly love is merely a demonstration of power. It is also tenderness, and critically so. Was it not his breast that John the Apostle laid his head down upon? Can there be a greater example of tender, loving care than that? And indeed, we are to model that mostly with our own natural children. Let me ask you, Dad, what is the sum of a single tender touch? Well, maybe not a lot, but maybe a tremendous amount. It depends on the context, doesn't it? Depends on the nature of the anxiety in the person that is receiving this touch. But what is the sum of tens of thousands of fatherly hugs and tender touches on the shoulder 
and kisses on the forehead and on the cheeks and hundreds of playful attempts, if fruitless, to eat a child's fingers. It is sons that don't tear through the streets rampaging because their souls are open wounds. It is daughters who know their worth and thus later covenant with a man who honors that worth, daughters who regard their chastity as a sacred gift instead of viewing their sexuality as a commodity to be traded for the love that their fathers did not give them. Fathers, you've got to understand this. You must love on your children with liberality. My, the impact that you are capable of having upon them, and you will. Either way, and it's not just with touch, it's with kind words. And you have to consistently do this. Very often the most visceral lessons on the love of God that a child will ever learn will be gleaned from the behavior of their father. Or is it a coincidence that God represents himself as a father and Christ a son? Is that a coincidence? Does he need to do that? Is he biologically the father of the eternal son? No. No, he is not. But has he gleaned from the example of men a relationship that he then relates to himself? No, he has not. He has rather created in mankind and their experience a relationship that he can use and has used and does use primarily to expound the nature of himself and his love. And that love conferred member of the Trinity to member of the Trinity and that love that he confers upon we, his children, spiritually. And so you are representing him, brother Christian, and you're doing it for the better or the worse, but let it be for the better. I can tell you what a difficult thing it is to try to reverse engineer this whole situation to try to extrapolate from the example that you see in others what it means to have a loving father because you do not have it in your own example, in your own personal testimony. It creates an exceedingly difficult situation. Carry a tremendous burden, my brother. But it really is not that difficult. Make a concerted effort. Say a kind word, give a kind touch, do it over and over and over again. If they pass you in the kitchen, if they pass you coming and going, reach out, touch their shoulder. Pretty girl is an appropriate name. Handsome. These things matter, they matter greatly. It cannot be overstated. And in this you will image the God in whose image you were created in. But then there is also the testimony of the Son. So let's consider this, and of course this leads us into our next and final heading. And this is where children, as you were promised, your ears need to come to special attention. Because I'm going to begin here with a question for you. All little children, do I have you? And not so little children? There's none on that side. That makes it a little easier. All right, all of you are on this side. It's an easy question, I think. Was Jesus, the eternal Son, obedient to God the Father during his earthly ministry? Was Jesus obedient to God the Father? Did he obey him? Yes, he did. 
All right. Very good. John 14, 30 through 31. So that the world may know that I love the Father, I do exactly as the Father commanded me. So then, children, it is not only your fathers who represent God and reveal through their behavior His nature, nor your mother in her own way as she does. You do also. And this is the first and greatest reason for a child to obey his or her parents. So here again, then, we consider one of the greatest lessons of the Christian faith, and that is that what you do matters because it reveals who you are, and who you are matters most because you have been created to reveal who God is. This is what it means to be created in God's image. We alone in creation have this ability to reflect God. That's why the Son is called the Son. It reveals the nature of the relationship between the Father and the Son. It is an example of what you are to be, little children, son or daughter. And this fact changes everything. It gives every command that you receive from your mom and dad a profound significance that it wouldn't have otherwise. What's the significance as an isolated matter of mowing the lawn or not mowing the lawn when your parents tell you to? Not that much. I mean, at a certain point, it gets a little crazy, and if you have really little children, you might lose them in it. But if it hasn't gotten to that point, it's not that critical. Except if your obedience is meant to model the obedience of Jesus, which it is, well, then every command has tremendous significance. Cleaning your room. Every act of obedience that you are called to. And this modeling Jesus through your obedience also explains the enormous priority that God places upon you children and your obedience to your parents. For example, how many commandments, this is a really difficult question, little children, are you listening? How many commandments are there in the Ten Commandments? Little rebellious child just yelled out 11. It's probably one of mine. There are ten There are ten indeed. So if there are only ten, they must be pretty important, right? Because there are other commandments, many. But in those ten commandments, they're all there because they're of extreme priority to God. Also consider that the first commandments, they pertain directly to our relationship with God. But then the last part, second half, they pertain to our relationships with each other. And in that final grouping, guess which one is first on the list? Guess which one? Honor your father and your mother. That comes before don't murder, comes before don't commit adultery, comes before don't steal, comes before don't lie, comes before don't covet. And in part, this is because if you honor your father and mother by obeying them, typically you don't become a murderous, adulterous, lying, thieving, covetous person. Obeying parents is how children learn to submit. And submission is a critical aspect of our experience as people. Isn't it? You know, rebellious children, they become rebellious adults. And that becomes something that brings very serious consequences upon them, up to and including death. And rebellious children also rebel against God. And that brings the most serious consequence, and that is spiritual death in eternal hell. Are you still listening, children? 
Okay, this is why in Exodus 20, verse 12, honor your father and mother is the first commandment with a promise. And what is that promise? That your days may be prolonged in the land which the Lord your God gives you. Or as Paul said in Ephesians, and he broadens it out and applies it to everyone, he says this in chapter 6, verses 1 through 3, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may be well with you, and you may live long on the earth. So am I saying that you will physically and or spiritually die if you do not obey your parents consistently as a general matter? I want to assure you that I'm not saying that. God is. And I'm merely repeating it. Because if you will live a long life because of obedience, what's going to happen to you if you disobey? Well, let's check in with Solomon again. In the book of Proverbs, Proverbs 6, 20 through 23, my son, and this certainly includes daughters as well, observe the commandment of your father and do not forsake the teaching of your mother. Bind them continually on your heart, tie them around your neck. When you walk about, they will guide you. When you sleep, they will watch over you. When you awake, they will talk to you. For the commandment is a lamp and the teaching is a light and reproofs for discipline are the way of life as opposed to what other way? The way of death. A little bit like the broad path that leads to destruction. Proverbs 3, 1 through 2. My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. For length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. Proverbs eight thirty six. But he who sins against me injures himself. All those who hate me love death. And the me there that is being personified is the wisdom that is being expressed from the parents. So the parents are saying, here's what you do. And Solomon is saying, if you don't do that in so much as what they say is consistent with the word of God, you're loving death. Proverbs 20, 20, he who curses his father or his mother, his lamp will go out in time of darkness. That is a poetic way of saying he will die. And poetry is nice because sometimes it takes away the sting, but sometimes the sting needs to be there. And so, Proverbs 30, verse 17, listen to me very well, children. Thus saith the Lord, the eye that mocks a father and scorns a mother, the ravens of the valley will pick it out and the young eagles will eat it. I'm not going to expound upon that, but let me read it to you again in case you missed it. The eye that mocks a father and scorns a mother, the ravens of the valley will pick it out, and the young eagles will eat it. I know that you are told by all your little friends or by so many of them that it's not a big deal to disregard the instruction of your parents. It is, it is critical to your souls. Rebellious children are prone to death. And why? Well, the answer to this must be given with respect to two individual categories because two kinds of death are at play here. There is first the physical and then there is the spiritual. Uh, Physically, children who rebel commonly die prematurely because foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child, Proverbs 22, 15, and you know foolishness kills. It does. God's way is the way of wisdom that leads to life, but the fool has a better way, or so he or she thinks. But their better way is not actually better. Proverbs fourteen twelve. there's a way which seems right to a man or a woman or 
little boy or little girl, but its end is the way of death. Now, for example, God commands and Christian parents teach their children to work hard and to earn their own way. But fools steal what they did not earn, and they do so from the people that they feel they can exploit to weak people, to poor people. But what is the end of this? Proverbs 22, 22 through 23. Do not rob the poor because he is poor. Crush the afflicted at the gate, for the Lord will plead their case, and the Lord will take the life of those who rob them. And God commands and Christian parents teach their children to wait for a spouse in whom they can delight and to let that be the outlet of their sexuality. But fools take what is not theirs with the effect of Proverbs 7, 22 through 23. Suddenly he follows her. This is the fool following the adulterous woman. As an ox goes to the slaughter or as one in fetters to the discipline of a fool until an arrow pierces through his liver as a bird hastens to the snare so he does not know that it will cost him his life. And finally, although I could give you many, many more examples, God commands and Christian parents teach their children to spend time with other children of good character and to avoid children with foolish character and who are rebellious. But these foolish children nevertheless seek company amongst those who bring them to destruction. Proverbs thirteen twenty: He who walks with the wise will be wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. You know, when you are a kid... You're seeing all kinds of beginnings, and you're at your beginning. It's the springtime of life, okay? Everything is new, and it's new in all of your peers, the people that you spend the most time with, or at least that you want to spend the most time with. And so you see, for example, the obedient child at his beginning, and you think, will his obedience be honored later in life, or is this just a vain exercise, and he should have just done whatever he wanted and been happier? as a result of it. Or on the other hand, you see bad beginnings. The kid who doesn't honor his father and mother and disobeys consistently, and you think, is this really that bad? And how will this end? I mean, will it be as severe as my parents are telling me that it will be, or are they just fuddy-duds making stuff up and wanting to ruin my good time? As you get on in life, you have the opportunity to start to see some of these beginnings end. I had a friend, and I've had many like this, many, many, many. I I would occupy all that remains of my time and then some if I went through these example by example. But I had this friend in particular, and there was just no restraint in terms of what his parents would let him ingest sexually. It It was unbelievable. I'd go over his house and and I couldn't believe that parents would do this, and part of me being 12 and also a reprobate thought that this was cool, but another part of me thought, what does this mean when there are no restraints like this? Like, what does that mean about how this parent loves their child or how these set of parents love their child? If there's no guards placed around them, can they really, in fact, be considered loving? Now, that was the beginning. And we were, I was 12 11, 12, he was a couple years older than me. But then when I was 22, I caught up with him. And at 22, I had one child and I had another. No. How many children did I have at 22? I had, yes, two. All right. No, that's not right. Yeah, I had one. All right, I had one. Okay. So I had one child, had a home, was starting to build 
something that mattered, and I caught up with this kid who was no longer a kid. And he had four children by four different women. And he was building four different households. He had guaranteed that he would never have anything because he was going to be blue-collar for the rest of his life. And you know what one income divided over four families is? Not a lot. And he was never going to be able to enjoy the children that he had sired by all these different women. I have watched many promiscuous singles become adulterous married. I have watched the ruin that it caused. I have seen person after person die, and I come from a particularly rough neighborhood, but I'll tell you what. We've gotten to the point here in this society where drugs don't care where you live. And so they were everywhere. And now I move out to the country, and there's meth houses, evidently. This society is rotting, and you little children will not be able to avoid the rot if you do not obey. But do you know who has seen not only far more beginnings than you children, but many, many ends as well? Your mom and your dad? Your mom and your dad have. And because they're Christians, the observation of those patterns has just made them trust the Lord all the more. It's like all the things that God said were going to happen happened, and they've seen them happen so many times that they know that they are going to happen, and they're trying to warn you, this will happen if you do this. So the bad news is that you little children are foolish. And you say, no, you don't know me. And I don't know you personally. I mean, I do know you, but how well do you know a person when you see them only at church and in passing? So you can make that claim. But does the Lord God, your creator, know you? Because thus saith the Lord, Proverbs twenty-two fifteen, Foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. You are foolish. Very. And as a result of this left to your own devices, you will destroy yourself. But the good news is that wisdom abides in the heart of a parent who loves Jesus, and that wisdom is a gift of God to you. It is a hedge of protection that he has placed around your life so that you don't ruin yourself. Now, as a child, you don't know everything. Okay, and that's okay. You don't have to. But you do have to know that you don't know everything, 10-year-old, 15-year-old. But I want to focus in here in the end on that category of wisdom that your parents can give you that is greatest. Okay, because it is true that every command that your parents give you as children you need to obey and you need to honor. But it is not true that all points of wisdom are created equal. Some are more important than others, and one reigns supreme over all of them. And this wisdom, it pertains to that second category of death of which I spoke before. And that was what? The first was physical death. What was the second one? Spiritual death. Your parents' number one job in this life is to give you the gospel. Your parents' number one job is to teach you in this life not to rely upon your own good works. Because do you know how many times you have to not honor your father and mother to lose your eternal soul in everlasting hell? Do you know how many times? Just one. And you and I both know you've done it a lot more than one time, haven't you? You stand condemned before the living God, having violated that preeminent command given from man to man in the Ten Commandments. 
You have misrepresented his nature. You have, in this sense, blasphemed the Lord your God. And you stand condemned as a result of it. Who will rescue you, little child, from the mess that you have made? Who will save you? 2,000 years ago, there was born an infant, and this infant was far more than an infant, far more than a baby. He was eternal God poured into human flesh. And do you know how many stages of the human experience he lived through? All of them. All the way through childhood, all the way into adulthood. And this is really important because he experiences all of these stages that he may redeem all who are in those stages. Do you know that Jesus Christ never, ever sinned. Not even as a child. There was that one time that his parents thought he did, but then it turned out that they were confused. And he was actually doing the work of his father. That's true. And that's the only way you get saved. I am very happy that your parents are here in church right now. But you will not be saved because they are I am very happy if your parents have saving faith, but you are not saved by their faith. You are saved because Jesus was perfect, and you are only saved if you place your trust in that alone. This is the greatest wisdom that your parents have to give, and I pray that they give it frequently. And you need to understand this about your dad and your mom. We, as moms and dads, strive to be examples of God and his character and his nature. And there isn't a day that we transgress against him by not living up to that standard. So use us in a limited sense. If you want an example of perfection, you're going to have to look to Jesus. And we're doing the best that we can to train you to put your eyes on him because we can't save you. Trust in Jesus. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the opportunity to speak to these children specifically. Lord, I pray for the sake of your glory first that you give them saving faith and for the sake of we, their parents, and not having to experience the pain of watching them destroy themselves and destroy their own souls. I pray that you save them. And Father, help you fathers to love ours. Help us to love them hard. Help us to not go the other way in avoiding this emasculated, flaccid concept of manhood into we are generals and they are soldiers. We are the fathers who love them. Help us to embrace that role. Help them to know that we cherish them, that we will never not be there. And it doesn't matter what they do. We will grieve over their sin if indeed they commit it, and we will grieve over their unbelief if they remain in it. But they are ours. And help us to always love them as we ought. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Hi there, this is Austin Hetzler, the pastor of Christ the Rock Church of Elyria, Ohio. 
We at Christ the Rock are humbled and grateful to be a part of your sanctification today as you listen to this sermon. But at the same time, we want to encourage you to be a member of a good local church and not to allow online sermons to replace the local church and to benefit from the life of that church and to give your spiritual gifts back to that church. Having said that, our website is www.ChristRockChurch.com. If you go there, you can find sermons, blogs, and other resources as well as our location and service times. You can also listen to the sermons on Bible Thumping Wingnut, Podbean, iTunes, Google Play Music, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and Stitcher. I, along with the membership of Christ the Rock Church, pray that this sermon will be a blessing to you.